0: You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. My co-host today is our one and only Pacific Companies COO, I'm sure you guys are familiar with him by now, Mr. John Polk. Today John and I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Laura Purdy. Dr. Purdy is a board certified family medicine physician with many years of experience as a full-time med peds hospitalist as well as a chief of hospital services for an army community hospital. Dr. Purdy is passionate about telemedicine, and so we're going to talk to her about her journey through medicine, and then also she's going to educate us on her expertise on telemedicine. We're excited to have such an inspiring woman on our podcast, so let's get started. Um, Well, first of all, John um, and I are very happy to have you on the podcast, so thank you so much, Dr. Purdy, for taking your time and joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to get to spend some time
0: with you all.
2: Awesome. So I I saw that you uh, have self-proclaimed evangelist for telemedicine. Is that accurate?
1: Is it accurate that I'm a self-proclaimed evangelist? Yes. But I think it's also accurate that I am one because that's all I talk about all day, every day, from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. I talk about it um, in every audience that I can, uh, to the extent that I can, because if we don't talk about it, then we're never going to enact the change that the industry needs. So I'd say yes.
2: How did you, how long have you been doing it and how, how did you first get interested in doing telemedicine?
1: Sure. The first time I ever, ever did telemedicine was in 2014 when I was in the army and I was working with the 91st civil affairs and my medics were deployed to Africa and the first time I ever did telemedicine was we had a soldier out there who had a ruptured appendix in the middle of Uganda and the medics Whoa. frantically called me and said, here's what's going on. You know, we wow. video have did the FaceTime and I said, you guys have got to get him to the hospital. I don't care where you are. And the, the soldier ended up having an appendectomy in Uganda and so that was the first time that I really saw how useful, and in this instance, even life-saving um, virtual remote care can be. And, and from there, um, it's just continued on from there.
0: And was this all through um, phone? There was no video?
1: Sure, there was definitely video because iMessage works anywhere where you have, you know, Wi-Fi. And so if you can use iMessage, then you can FaceTime. And and so, yeah, we really did have video capability.
2: So Great. Uh, that's a fascinating story. What was what, what ended up uh, happening with respect to the soldier that had the acute appendicitis? Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, so I'll riff on his story just a little bit because sometimes it's crazy to envision what it's like receiving healthcare in other countries, especially third world countries. But he went to the emergency department, obviously got some sedation and some pain medicine in preparation for emergency surgery. But he would tell the story that he remembers being wheeled down the hall and he would see that the hall was lined with shoes because people take their shoes off because in Uganda, there's culturally, where you take shoes off. So inside the hospital, there there was shoes that people had taken off lining the floor of the hallways of the hospital. Um, and then there was a an American flight surgeon who was with the Air Force that was physically present. The Ugandan surgeon said, you know, you're not credentialed to practice here, so you can't be in our operating room. So they kicked out the American flight surgeon, and they did the surgery. It was fine. He recovered well. He did get a suture infection when he made it back to the States. So I treated him for a little wound infection. But beyond that, he did well, went back to back to service, and and continued on his duty appropriately.
2: Wow. And so wow. what happened thereafter that it really sort of launched your – your efforts into telemedicine.
1: That was when I realized that I have capacity to do good without being confined to that in-person encounter. I didn't know, I had no idea that this was a thing that was being done in the real world. And at that time, 2014, they may not have had more than Teladoc and Amwell, some of the big box urgent care telemedicine companies I don't think that that the industry had even evolved but in 2016 I was introduced so that was two short years later I was introduced to um to MD live which was my first telemedicine job and it took only a few weeks to realize that it could be not only could it be a viable career option for me to totally replace what I was doing in brick and mortar but that we really had a A good substrate or a good baseline to really be able to build an entirely new industry on it and redefine not only the way we practice medicine, but also the way we define relationships between doctors and patients, because that's the intersection of the law and the practice of medicine is making sure that we abide by how the states say what we have to do to make a doctor patient relationship, but that was the springboard certainly.
2: Okay, so <clears throat> the first question I had was a little bit off uh, tangential, is should a patient or a physician who's new to this or anybody else for that matter, have concerns about the privacy and the security of that telemedicine exchange?
1: My answer to that is we should have the same security that we have when we do things like emails, Zooms, banking transactions, Um, online purchases, anything that you do online, you should have that same level of concern for privacy that you do for telemedicine.
2: Okay. So the, the actual virtual private network, which I guess is the proper technology to, to describe the actual exchange is secure and we shouldn't be concerned about that if we're a patient or a physician.
1: Well, every system is different, right? Just like every banking system, I mean, you've seen things online where your financial information has been breached or your social security number has been leaked or your credit card has been leaked on the dark web. And so I I think the answer to that question is very much the same answer to how secure are all of the other online systems, right? Some are more secure than others. Some some have proper security um, systems set into place and others don't. It's just as secure and it's just as private as any, as any other online system.
2: Okay. You mentioned licensing. Um, I think I saw on, uh, somewhere on your introduction <clears throat> that you've got licenses in every state. Uh, if, if that's incorrect, please correct me. What's the difference between a telemedicine license in one state versus another? And are there impediments in various states for obtaining that or limitations for having that telemedicine capability? Let's say, I know in some states that you have to be present in the state, or at least that was my experience in the past.
1: Great question. No states require a physician to be physically present in a state to hold a medical license or to practice medicine in that state is a myth. And it's actually a very dangerous myth because a lot of the reports that are filed and complaints that are filed against doctors to medical boards by civilians comes from their ignorance of the fact that a doctor does not have to be located in the state where the services are rendered. Even before COVID, that was not a thing. Um, And you don't have to be licensed in that state to be practicing medicine there. But you do, I'm sorry, you don't have, forgive me I said that wrong. You don't have to be located in a state to practice medicine there, but you do have to be licensed in the state to practice medicine there, but licensure and residency are, are not the same thing and they are not required. Um, some states do have a telemedicine license every other, but I, I prefer full and restricted licenses because if I ever wanted to physically go and, and physically practice in a state, then I would like to have the licensure intact to do that. Um, but only a very small percentage of states that have telemedicine licenses. The rest of them are just full and restricted licenses. Um, the requirements are the same. The licensing process is the same. You go to the state medical board website, you print off the application or you file it online if it's electronic, and then you start to compile all of the requirements that that particular state has for you to get licensed in their state generally speaking, the telemedicine licensures, if they have them, like Oregon is a state that I know that has that. I think Texas also may have that beyond that. I'm not sure who does. Um, They're usually shorter applications with fewer requirements because they know you're generally not going to be applying for in-person privileges at a hospital if you're doing the medicine licenses, but the restrictions are less rather than more.
0: Yeah, John, and you can comment on this um, kind of Expand on this, um, but we do have a locum tenens department here, and I'm noticing more and more. I mean, it's weekly. We're getting telemedicine assignments just all the time, almost every day.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, it 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 occurs to me that there's a huge potential that exists out there. Um, before we get into that, can you give us an overview of what the principal advantages are of telemedicine. I think everybody understands that it expands the the reach, the access, particularly for rural areas. Here in California, we have vast areas that are remote, and the only way they're ever going to get it, for instance, an endocrinology consult, is through telemedicine. But share with us what you've discovered is some of the advantages of telemedicine that others may not understand or appreciate yet.
1: Sure. So healthcare as an industry, I think to its detriment has been very slow to join the modern digital age. We can do anything online. Now I can have groceries delivered to my house or I can schedule groceries to be delivered to my house in two weeks, right? I can shop online. I have a veterinarian. I do veterinarian care online. Um, My children take instrumental music, music lessons online. Our entire nation did educational, you know, schooling in this, in the year of 2020, we proved that you could do just about anything online, but because of adoption and fear and ignorance and um, impediments at the the legislative um, level, the healthcare industry has been slow to catch up with the entire rest of the world in leveraging digital technology to perform their functions. So my argument to you is that digital healthcare, virtual healthcare, or we can use the term telemedicine, which is slowly becoming outdated, improves every aspect. It improves scheduling, it improves commute. It expands a patient's ability to get care outside of normal business hours, which means that more people are going to get care because now they don't have to take off time from work or travel or um, pull their kids out of school. It also increases access to specialists. It decreases cost because a lot of telehealth is cash pay right now, although we are starting to see a lot of payers come into the mix but it's cheaper. You don't have to deal with co-pays. It's a better alternative for people who are uninsured. It does expand the doctor's reach. That's true, but it also helps with quality of life for physicians. Physicians are leaving the practice of medicine every day because their souls are just being crushed by what it's like to work in a hospital or a clinic. It's, it's, it's no way to live. Frankly, being a full-time physician is, is hardly, hardly, um, a way to live. And so telehealth is doing that. Um, additionally, the technology that is being developed and the devices and the connectivity and all of the innovative technology that we are starting to see develop, I think is actually pushing us closer. This is really exciting to actually be able to deliver better health care through technology, better quality, better accuracy, um, and better delivery of healthcare than, than what we see in the brick and mortar traditionally.
2: Interesting. Um, I, I'm sure there must be some hesitation beyond the legislative level and, and we can only presume that that's entrenched interests that might be the resisting factor there. But what sort of reluctance and or challenges have you found towards adoption at a patient and, and physician provider level?
1: Phenomenal question. My, my, my summary of where I think the problems to adoption come from, it, it falls into, I would say, maybe three buckets, right? The first bucket is just ignorance. People don't know what they don't know. And we don't have enough systemic adoption yet that the first thing the average American thinks when they want to get some healthcare done is, ooh, let me check online to see what's available. So just just general adoption. We don't think about it. We don't know about it. We don't know to look for it. We don't know what the options are. And we, when I say we, I mean, you know, the general public. The second is fear, right? Fear. In the early, early, early days of online care, we would have the old online pharmacies where there was no doctor interaction you would get pills shipped from who knows where in the world, potentially they're bad quality. Maybe you would get identity theft along the way. And that is unfortunately the archaic precursor to modern day digital healthcare, but it also put a really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So there's fear of scams, fear of um, you know having, having their, their identity stolen, or somebody harming them, or not being seen by a real doctor, which there's really no substance to those fears at all. Um, but the second thing I would say is, is fear. And then I think the third, the third problem with adoption is an inability to have an open mind and understand that this is where we are heading, whether yeah. we like it or not. Yeah, and that's a lot of the problems with the doctors. And unfortunately it's the unpopular opinion, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's the popular opinion, but the naysayers are just going to kind of have to finish their career, retire and move on so that everything can advance because this isn't really the future. It's actually the present. It's already here. Millions upon millions and millions and millions of healthcare visits are done through digital health every year. And, um, I think Resistance to the fact that it's already here, resistance to the fact that it is the future, and resistance to get on board uh, will just result in those doctors kind of fading away and being replaced by the future of our industry.
0: Is there any difference in um a prescribing when it becomes to telemedicine?
1: So the medicine never changes. The practice of medicine never changes. But what we are faced with from a legal perspective is we have to make sure that we are meeting the legal definition for doctor-patient relationship, which I feel like I could talk a whole other hour on doctor-patient relationship and how we define it and why we are judging so harshly how we define that. I just think we have no business judging that anymore um, or to the extent that has been done historically. But the the prescribing, so there's a lot of technological systems that have to be put into place for you even to be able to do it because it has to be done digitally. That's the law in most states, Um, but establishing the patient encounter, making sure the system is set up to safely transmit ERX and then acquiring or gleaning all of the information that you need from your patient to issue a valid prescription that's medically appropriate. Those are the steps, but it really doesn't change. From what we do in person
0: and it doesn't have to be phone or virtual is there a difference
1: so so there's two types of of telehealth right and some people would argue there's a third synchronous which is phone and video and that's kind of old school asynchronous which is done chat based intake form based questionnaire based email based and then some people would say like remote patient monitoring which is really interacting with patient data and less interacting with the patient, but their data. And those would be the people that are on remote telemetry or doing blood sugar checks, or like, you know, EKGs, heart rate monitors, where uh, sleep studies, where the doctor is is looking at that from over here and making medical decisions based off of the data. Um, But that really probably falls still more into synchronous or asynchronous, but the vast majority of states now have provisions in their laws to permit for the delivery of asynchronous healthcare.
2: Interesting. Mm -hmm. In prescriptive authority that you've you've explained that, are there distinctions between the provision of virtual or digital telehealth medicine and face-to-face encounters when it comes to medical malpractice in the provision of insurance?
1: The policies cost about the same, right? Because I'm still doing family medicine, but I am not doing procedures. So maybe it's cheaper because I'm not requesting to be insured for, for procedures, but the vast majority of what, what you're doing through telehealth is exceptionally low risk. I've never been declined a policy and neither have any of my friends, either. I have some gynecologists and some urologists and dermatologists and EM docs I'm family medicine. Um, and I think what I've heard is that the policies generally cost the same, but if you're not doing procedures, then it's a little cheaper.
2: And I would presume because it's, shall we say, accurately, I, I hope, uh, predominantly outpatient, if not ex- almost, well, maybe, maybe not in every instance, does it change the credentialing and privileging piece
1: Yeah. So the vast majority of, of companies that I have been affiliated with are direct to consumer cash pay outpatient. So I need a refill for my asthma medicine, or I want to be evaluated for Viagra, or I have this skin thing. Can you assess me these days? However, there is a tremendous market for. Virtual wards, virtual ICUs, virtual ERs, virtual urgent cares, which is still outpatient virtual observations, um, even outpatient inpatient wards, which is crazy where people are being managed at home under but with in-person nurses and LPNs and MAs, and then remote physicians that are making decisions off the management. I mean, there's so yeah. many in the cat credentialing gets a little, gets a little, um, gets a little sticky because I think most hospitals again, have not yet caught up with, this notion, And they're still putting people all the way through full credentialing processes, which in my humble opinion is unnecessary because again, they're not doing procedures. They're not touching people. They're not going to go do CPR and put in chest tubes. So the liability is generally lower, but, um, but yeah, they're still putting people through full formal credentialing processes. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Um, I've got another question here for you. Uh, I've talked to physicians who are embarking on their first telemedicine assignment, and there was uniformly some some hesitation and, and questions about how's this going to work. So in your experience, are there, and if there are, what are the u- unique skills required for a physician to be adept at this?
1: Excellent question, and I've heard the same, I've heard the same, and because I get it, physicians are creatures of habit, they are generally risk averse if they're smart, and telemedicine is different, right, but the nice thing is, is that it is like a Burger King scenario, you can have it your way, on both sides of the coin, the business has the ability to create their offering however they want to offer it, and the physician is a consumer, of the product as well, because they're using the platform, they're beholden to the policies. And so I consider the, the physician to be an internal stakeholder of whatever company they're going to be affiliated with. So what I tell doctors is just because you don't have one good experience, don't let that be your own, your, your only experience. I've worked for probably 75 to hundred companies, either directly worked for them, consulted for them, helped design them, been on their management team, You know, in some capacity I've worked for that many companies and there are just as many offerings out there as there are people and working styles. The type of personality traits that you have to have is you have to be technologically savvy. If you're not good with tech, it's not going to work because these companies thrive off of tech devices, tech systems, and you have to be a fast typer. You have to be able to use multiple devices. You have to be able to think in technology terms. The second thing is that you have to be flexible and adaptable. By and large, this is a innovative startup industry. It hasn't been around long enough for this to be a cemented in, you know, well-held in, well-baked in institution. They're all startups and they're all doing well and they're all well-funded, And but expect things to change. Some businesses grow faster than others. Some bring in revenue and patients faster than others. And, and some succeed well. So expect a lot of change, expect a lot of innovation and turnover. And if, if you are not someone who can use technology and handle the fast paced change of the tech startup world, then it, then it may not be for you right now.
2: So <clears throat> I, 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 that makes sense. Thank you for that. That was very insightful. Where do you see room for improvement in the current offerings for telemedicine?
1: Ooh, that's a big question as well. I don't think that there's, there's a few populations that I think we're still underserving. And I think the reason why is because technology is the barrier. Doctors know how to take care of patients. Patients know how to relate to doctors, but the technology is the missing piece, right? Pediatrics. We still have some work to go with pediatrics because as they teach us in school, the child really can't tell you all the time what they're feeling. So you have to use your exam skills and your equipment to help you arrive at the data. And so that's where these smart connected devices come in to help us do a better job. Rural patients where bandwidth is an issue, or maybe they're just not sophisticated enough to understand how to use technology. We have to figure out how to get to them and how to help them and how to access them where they are with the technology that they have. And the third is the aging population, right? The Medicare, Medicaid, lots of comorbidities, very sick, definitely not technologically savvy, um, but the sickest Americans are the ones that were not doing the best job of, of providing services to them yet. And so I would say those are the three areas in which I could see we have a lot of room to grow and we need to see more development and more innovation in the technology to be able to reach those people.
2: Yeah, Of course, aside from the procedurally oriented type of care, where that would be, I imagine, difficult. Um, in my conversations with Physicians that were providing neurological consultations with patients, they had a LVN, for instance, in the room instructing the patient as to what to do. Is that fairly common in your experience?
1: Tell me a little bit more. tell me tell me tell me a little bit more about about what you've seen there.
2: Well, what we've seen there is that there's sort of a, I don't know, like a patient coach, if you will, that is helping facilitate the specific instruction. We're talking about neurology, so it's more physical movement disorder kind of things where the uh, physician on their end may not be uh, quite as adept at communicating what they want the patient to do. So they've got an LVN or an MA in there saying, okay, well, why don't you try this and raise your arm this way or those kinds of things. I'm just wondering how, how common that is and if that's still necessary In say the provision of primary care, I wouldn't think so.
1: Oh, well, you know, that's a good idea. And so I I have not run into that specific use case yet, but I I have seen uh, lots of instances where the, the, the MAs or the LPNs or even RNs might be on site with the patient and either collecting vitals or conducting assessment, you know, physical exam, and then relaying that information in real time. Back to the the physician, and I think depending on the use case, there's definitely still a need for that. Depending on on where it is and what they're doing, right? I could definitely see in the neurologic, in the neurologic space that would be very important because neuro testing is very intricate. Um, but yeah, I don't think we've moved past that. I think the more that we can blend what we're doing virtually or digitally with what we're doing in brick and mortar to try and eliminate that exit of care where we say i'm so sorry but i can't take care of you anymore virtually and so you're going to have to go in to be seen the farther out we can safely push that point the better that we're doing and i could envision that using lvns or someone to do that would help us get to that point
2: i've got a number of other questions here uh i'm going to skip some of them and i do have at least one more i want to ask you but before i ask you that dr Purdy. Are there some things that you want to you want to share with us about telemedicine, given your breadth of experience that we should know that I haven't asked you about?
1: I mean, gosh, you 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 have hit you've really hit the nail on the head. But I think the one group of people that maybe we haven't talked to, right? Because we've talked about doctors, we've talked about hospitals, we've talked about patients, we've even talked about the law a little bit, but who haven't we talked about, right? The segment of people that we haven't talked about yet is. The potential founders and the potential innovators and i say the young and up and comers because usually they're younger and usually they're up and coming the people who have brilliant ideas about how to launch the next big thing that's going to disrupt the industry of whatever and turn it on its head because the healthcare industry has subsegments of smaller industries within the larger industry there are uh-huh. people who are disrupting the lab industry the home testing industry the vital signs industry, the inpatient industry, we need those innovators to not have fear and to be bold, to step up and say, I have this idea. Let's see if we can make change. Those are, those are the people that I want to talk to. And those are the people that, that I look to get a hold of because those ideas need to be brought into life and pulled into existence. The industry is actually driven by innovators and founders and not by insurance companies and health systems like the public would perceive it to be. Those
2: institutions
1: <laughs> don't drive change. They maintain status quo and begrudgingly adopt to change as the industry pulls the rug out from underneath them and changes. And so I think th- those are the people that, that we really need to, to capture to move this forward.
2: As a yeah. successful Pacific, or excuse me, as a successful recruiting firm, both permanent and local tenants. Pacific Company has been approached uh, on a number of occasions about partnering with some um, emerging telemedicine, virtual medicine. I'm going to ask you to, to tell me what the current uh, nomenclature is so I get it right going forward. But we've been approached by some of these organizations. And there, in my estimation, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect with how to land on the proper reimbursement model uh, To make it work to make it sustainable because they're all coming to us to say we need you to help us staff this and so there's a bit of a disconnect with with what they want and what we can provide not that we don't have any difficulty uh we don't certainly have any difficulty finding applicants but you know we don't do it for free and so again i'm just wondering if there's a sort of preferred model that you've seen because again you're talking about cash and then there's a reimbursement component And anyway, it seems like it's still emerging in that regard. Thoughts?
1: Oh, that's a can of worms. So (laughs) nowhere to the extent of you with the caveat, but staffing is one of my specialties because I've created networks for companies like MD live and hims and hers. And so that's what I did, you know, for three years. And now the company that I work with open loop is kind of like full stack telemedicine, but there is a segment of recruitment that happens there. Nowhere to the extent of what you would be doing. Telemedicine physicians are like slippery little squirrels. They really are. And I don't know how else to describe them. They they are like slippery little squirrels. And and the reason why is because the more licenses you get, the more money you're able to make. Here's the catch 22. I'm going to tell you what the rock and the hard place is, right? The rock is that. Companies cannot hemorrhage out all of their cash on doctors, but they all want 50 state licensed physicians because it's easier for them to hire less physicians with more licenses because that's less personalities to manage and that's just less slippery squirrels to hold on to because that's what telemedicine physicians are. I love them, but that's what it is. That's the rock, right? But the hard place is that the more licenses a doctor has the more they can make. And the harder it is for you or anyone to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to accept something like a hundred bucks an hour or 150 bucks an hour. And if you are trying to get them to do synchronous visits, which is phone calls and video visits, forget about it. A 50 state or even, I mean, anything more than about 10 or 15 licenses, unless they have disciplinary action, they're not going to sit around and do phone call and video visits for you all day long especially if they're 20 or 30 minute visits, forget about it. So the, the problem that, that you come up on is how do I make the client happy? And how do I keep the doctors happy? And that's nearly impossible to do. Somebody has to give, usually it has to be the company because the doctors are too arrogant to change. Um, but reimbursement, it, so the way that I like to talk about it is you either pay for time or you pay for coverage. So, so, and this is just my own thing that I made up, right? So you, you may think about this totally different, but this is how I think about it. I cannot pay somebody to be available 24 seven, 365 to take a small number of cases and expect them to be happy with a reimbursement per case. I can't say, Hey doctor, you're going to get five calls a day I'm only going to pay you 35 bucks for your 5 calls, but you have to take those calls no matter when they come in. Right. It just doesn't work. So conversely what you can do is you can pay a lower rate for coverage that may or may not have patients pop up and doctors actually kind of like that cuz it feels like free money, but you're paying them for their time, right? But on the other side of the coin, doctors are not willing to be paid for their time if they're going to get water hose blasted with 50 consults in a, you know, in an eight hour day, back in the day, I was doing 40 hour, 40 patients a day, 40 phone calls and videos a day. And that was uh, awful. It was really hard to sustain. And I did that for a couple of years. So you have to decide if you're gonna pay them for their time or if you're gonna pay them for their volume, but you can't really do both. Volume jobs are not happy being paid for their time. And time jobs aren't really happy being paid for their volume. And so somewhere in there is the secret sauce of how to pay everybody and keep everybody happy and then also make your margin and let it be a fair market value. I don't I don't envy you because those are hard decisions to make. Yeah.
2: yeah. The disconnect has been you're buying their availability, but you only want to pay them when there's actually an encounter. I understand that from a business point of view, if I'm the tele health telemedicine company, but it, it, it shows a lack of understanding of the mindset of that physician. Hey, I'm hanging her out and I don't get to control the availability of patients. You guys, you know, if, if you want me to see patients, then that's really more up to you rather than up to the physician as a whole. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad we had an opportunity to talk about that, but yeah.
1: And I'll take it one step further for you there, right? Because that, that removes the human element from things, right? Because I have four kids, the youngest is eight. Or I'm sorry, the oldest, the oldest is eight. Let me say that correctly, because that changes things. If I am signing up to do a availability gig, right? Never, I, I am 100% certain that the moment my one patient in a six hour time period comes in will be when every one of them is screaming and hollering and throwing a fit and is the absolute worst time ever for me to take a call, right? Um, but I can't hire a babysitter to sit there for 12 hours in case a patient comes in, right? Because then I'm actually losing money on the job. And if they have you know, a 30 minute or a one hour SLA, which is you know a service level agreement, how quickly they want their cases to be turned around, I can say, okay, well, I can't really control when my children stop screaming, but I'll get it as soon as they do. And I don't think you want your patients to have that experience. So when you throw in that element of like human life and how do we, how do we fit this into the fact that a lot of people are work from home and we have lives and families and people and humans and things to consider, it's a very complex problem set you're trying to solve.
2: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the current model, and and, yeah. and to your point, there's going to need to be some flexibility. Um, I have one last question to ask, and that is, what do you wish you knew that you didn't know before you started the telemedicine, telehealth? And, and again, here's here's your opportunity to tell me what is the proper terminology that we should now embrace, and I'll share it with the entire organization. Yeah.
1: I, I like digital health. I'm starting to see, You know, I go to all the big conferences. I don't, I don't like the word telemedicine as much anymore because I think it's tied too closely to the word telephone, and so it makes us think that we're doing this when we talk to patients and we're moving away from this. So I like digital health because it, it's more of an inclusive term that, that embraces all the modalities. What I wish I had known that I did not know is that non-compete agreements are ridiculous and that that truly nobody really has the right to tell me or a doctor or any practitioner at all, um, when, where, and why, notice I didn't say how, cause we do get to tell them how, but when, where, and and why to practice medicine. And in my first full-time job, I did sign a non-compete agreement because I didn't know any better. And these days I don't do that anymore. And I've never had a company decline or reject me for saying, remove your non-compete clause. 100% of the time they say, okay, now I will sign non-circumvention and, um, like non-disclosure. I will sign all of those because I don't ever want to undermine anyone's business or circumvent what they're trying to do from a business perspective. Mm The notion that a company would try to own somebody's ability to practice medicine is, ridiculous. And I wish companies would stop doing that because it's illegal in a lot of places. I think that is a violation of the corporate practice of medicine laws, which states that companies cannot exert undue influence over the practice of medicine. And so if you're a doctor out there listening to this and you have a non-compete agreement in your contract, get that thing removed immediately because it's totally inappropriate.
2: We uh, coincidentally had a guest who was an expert on non-competes. Uh, an attorney, and she commented a great deal about that. Uh, I think the only provision that I'm qu- questioning is the violation of Stark, if, but, but that's sort of <clears throat> maybe for another conversation. But- um,
1: Did she agree with me? Did she say they were ridiculous?
2: Uh, yeah, she basically said that you should not sign them if you don't have to. And as yeah. you know, some states, a non-compete is, is essentially unenforceable to begin with. Some states are a bit old school about that. I think that uh, to your point, certain provisions do stand like an NDA or a non-solicitation, but a non-compete. I mean, you know, I used to advise physician group clients that, guys, you're just making it harder to attract an interested candidate because you're making, you're putting up this artificial impediment because you're (laughs) focused on your attorney is focused on the worst case scenario rather than really what your overall objective is. Which is to attract the talented individual.
1: Yes. Yeah. Agree. Hundred percent. I agree with you.
2: Summer, do you have any anything final to say? Oh. This has been terrific, by the way, Dr. Purdy. Yeah.
0: John, thank you so much for jumping in with these telemedicine questions. I know this is way up your alley. So I, I mean, I usually host, and I kind of just let him take the reins on this one um he john's been in the industry i don't even want to say how many years because i don't want to, to. turn my head she's gray here decades yes um so i let him take the reins on this one and john you did i mean some of those questions were spot on right on i learned so much from you dr purdy thank you so much for joining us um, I'd love to do round two, and maybe we could even get um, our other guest on that we talk to that's a contract attorney, and we can talk about, you know, non-competes, And and I love the fact that, I wrote this down too, I love the fact that you're moving towards the digital health, not telehealth, digital health, I love that, but thank you so much for your time, and get back to your children your crazy children and look at they didn't they look there i didn't hear them the whole time are they locked up
1: well i can hear them quite a bit actually The dogs <laughs> are almost the whole time so if you can't hear it that means we have great soundproofing it's yeah. really yes. crazy out yeah. there
2: <laughs> well again you are an expert and it's been a pleasure to speak with you and to learn about digital health digital medicine
0: yeah thank
1: you it's been a pleasure so- to be here Have a great one. Sounds great. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.
1: Thank you.